We talked last week, last Sunday, about this time, and it's in the archives if you want to go check that out on the Church Center app. We talked about the most wonderful time of the year. Is It's not wonderful this time of year simply because we have all these parties to go to or we're trying to find the right gift for the right person and wrap it just the right way. It's not wonderful for those reasons because that can actually drive you crazy. Or it's not wonderful because of the time of year of what's happening around you or who is with you or who is not with you because some of you are experiencing a tremendous amount of loss and like we talked about Christmas amplifies everything and that person that you love who's no longer here the the pain and the loss feels louder and more difficult so it's not because of what's happening but because of what happened and that is that Jesus literally invaded a very difficult situation waded right into the middle of the human mess We talked about John, the apostle, who wrote the gospel and the letters and had the opportunity to see the revelation. He said, it's tough, y'all. Life is hard, but God is good. Because he said, I got to hang out with Jesus. And he is exactly who he says he is. He is the light of the world. And in him is is life. Not like just taking another breath life, but life like no other. You have to take somebody like John seriously whenever he's saying those things. So it's not because of what is happening right now, but because of what happened then. And it's not, you're not going to say this is a wonderful Christmas because of who is with you or who is not with you. But like I tried to make the point of, you can say this is the most wonderful time of the year because it reminds me that Jesus, God in the flesh, is for me. He's not against me. A lot of you still think that God is really, really mad at you, and that's like, The birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is God's shouting at you. I'm not mad at you anymore. I'm mad about you. And I'd rather die than be without you. So that's where we are. Light of the world. If you were paying attention to the songs that we sang, they contain a lot of these references to light and to life. But it also was drawing attention to that word king. Now, we like to be the king or the queen or the one who's the ruler. How many of you like to be in charge? Could I see a show of hands? Of course I'll see the show of hands. The people who like to be in charge love it. And those of you who didn't raise your hands, you're lying, lying, lying. You're lying. It's a human condition. We want what we want and we want it right now. Yeah. I'm going to tell you another one of those stories that maybe you missed as you were trying to go through all the Christmas pageants, which we're not going to have a Christmas pageant on the evening of Christmas Eve when we have that service, but our children from RSK have been preparing a couple of beautiful songs, and you do not want to miss that, and it's going to be precious. And I will also say the king may show up, as in Elvis. We just, you, you don't know. Just come. And then I also know from, uh, um, from, from some preparation, you might actually get to hear the 12 days of Christmas. And um, you will never, ever, ever forget it. That's what I got to say. When we talk about these, these things, about who wants to be king, king of the mountain, king of the world, um, we all wrestle with it. But there's always a backstory to that sort of thing. I don't know what your backstory is, but I just know that my childhood uh, days, I don't remember. See, I'm of the theory, they tell you what your, 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 your birthday is, but you don't really know. 
I mean, you were there, but you weren't all there, right? Okay, so you kind of have to take people's word for that. And then Leanne and I argue about this because she says she has vivid memories from the time she was like two and a half, almost three. I'm like, there is no way on earth that is possible. And some of you are going, oh yeah, I remember exactly all that. I don't start remembering stuff until I was like eight. I have no recollection of all that early stuff. My mom, she's around here somewhere. You know, we, I grew up in, in Houston in that area, so it wasn't really terribly cold at this time of year, although it is humid, and you know, it gets down to 42, and you're, oh. and we had a dog, I'm told, Patches, is that what the dog's name was, or something like that, and you'd bundle me up like I lived in Colorado at the time, because I wanted to go play with the dog, and the dog would come knock me down, and I'd start crying, and then couldn't get back up, because I was like the Michelin man, you know. All these, and I was only two. I have no recollection of that. I think that's a cool story. I do remember when I was 12, though, my mom also, you think my dad wasn't involved in my life. He was. I just, I love these stories. Since we were traveling and helping in churches, and I was singing in front of people, I started singing publicly when I was five years old. They'd put me on a, a chair beside the pulpit, because that's back when you had a pulpit, big thing you could hide behind, you know. They put me on a chair beside the pulpit because even in the chair behind the pulpit, they still couldn't see me. So. Don't any of you get any big ideas on that, okay? But I sang, and I sang for a lot of people. My grandparents even put me up on, like, the, uh, the checkout counter at the grocery store and made me sing in public at the grocery store. It was horrible. No, I loved singing. And about the age of 11 or 12, I began to take note. I do sing pretty good. <laughs> Everybody kind of likes me. Since we were traveling, I go to a different church every single week, meet new people. I was new kids on the block before there was new kids on the block, y'all. And my mom was astute enough, savvy enough, that she pulled me aside and she said, You are so full of yourself. And you need to watch out for that because pride will undo you. And she told me a thing that I didn't want to hear, but I certainly needed to hear that it's really not about you, David. It's about who you're singing about. So I credit my mom and dad for saying, you can keep speaking boldly for the truth, but you're not the cat's pajamas. You're not the bee's knees. But Jesus. So that's really what this message is. And if any of you need to go to sleep, I just told you the context and the, 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 the bottom line of the message. But I wanted to be up front to say my plea for you today after I speak to you for these... <coughs> Pardon me, these, these several minutes. I want you to be able to reconnect to the God of your childhood. A lot of people I know either knew God or knew of him whenever they were small and then they wandered away. Some of you were actually pretty committed in, as you know, your family. And then through a series of circumstances and that divorce or that move, you got disconnected and you're kind of working your way back. And if you're listening to me today, either in online space or in this space, um, and you've never encountered Jesus, my hope is that you would actually see him for who he is. He's not a fairy tale. He's not a make-believe character. He is someone who really lived, and he really made a difference, and people really camped out with him, and they saw what he did. They saw him die. They saw him come back to life. You've got to take this seriously for your own good. I challenge you to do that. So I'm shooting straight with you. I want you to connect with the God who loves you. He loves you so much. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way.
And as you get to know him, he will require things of you. Not so that his love will continue, but so that you can continue to grow in spite of doubt, in spite of fear, in spite of pain, in spite of any kinds of distraction. There are so many different characters in the Jesus story, in the Jesus nativity story, because if you're with me and you love all this historical stuff, just write all this stuff down. Mark did not deal with that, because we know we're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are considered the Gospels, the good news about Jesus from people who were there, or uh, someone who wrote down what people who were with Jesus said. This is really important. Uh, Mark does not start with the, with the, the baby story. His gospel starts with Jesus' public ministry. So, thank you, Mark. We're going to put you right over here. So, we got Matthew, we got Luke, we got John. We dealt with John last week. He didn't write about the what or the how. He talked about the why. So, we've got these other guys. So, thank you, John. We're going to put that back over here. That leaves us with Matthew and Luke, which we'll deal with this week and next week. When Matthew was writing, he was very Jewish, but he was very outside the Jewish culture because he had decided to side with the Romans and become a tax collector. And yet Jesus said, come follow me, and he got up and followed, even though it kind of ruffled the feathers of everybody who was supposed to be super religious in Jesus' group. Okay? But he wrote from a Jewish perspective to say there are things that were said a long time ago, and I saw it come true in Jesus, prophecies that were made. He fulfilled those prophecies. Well, that's interesting. And then Luke, because I just get started on Luke. Luke was one of the best uh, investigators and historians the world has ever seen. And you can talk to me later about why I believe that. But what you get from all of these different uh, vignettes of what they wrote about, about when Mary got pregnant and how she gave birth and all these different things, there's all kinds of characters. Because you got, who, who identifies the most with, let me see, do you identify with Mary? Do you identify with Joseph? Maybe you say, no, I identify with shepherds, because they play a huge role in what happened. You see what happened there. Do you identify with um, Anna or Zechariah? Do you identify with uh, the, the wise men? Some of you think that you are definitely really wise. You think you're super, super smart. And you're like, God, wise men? Which, quick test, because we want to make sure that everybody's you know, equally offended. How many wise men were there? <laughs> See, trick question. The Bible does not say how many wise men there were. And yet, we all know the song. We three kings of Orient are smoking on a rubber cigar. It was loaded and exploded. Boom! We two kings of Orient are. I'm just telling you, I've been so I've been to church so much, I got I got alternate songs for everything. Okay. We've been led to believe because there were three different gifts that there were three different wise men. We don't know. We, we know kind of where they came from, and we call them we three kings. They weren't kings. They the word magi. Is, is what is used. It's the word we get magician from, but don't get that confused. Uh, back in the day, astronomy and astrology were all wrapped into one. They didn't go and look at their horoscope. They just watched what God had created and said, he's sending us signs. And sure enough, he was. They weren't from Israel. In all likelihood, they were from probably from Persia. There's outside chance they were from India. And they came a long, long way because they had read the texts of the Old Testament. They had read other things to try and put all this together. So is it Mary, Joseph, is the wise men, is the shepherds? I know, let's just do this because some of you do have the Sunday school badge and all that. How many of you identify with Jesus? 
Jennifer with baby Jesus. Okay. Yeah, good. Had one hand go up. That's good. That's good. There's another character in this whole story that I identify with, and I think if you're honest with me, if you're honest with yourself, if you're honest to God, you could probably say I identify with this guy too. I want to tell you a little bit about him. He was a client king of Rome over the area that included Jerusalem, which was Judea. That was the, the county, the, the state, if you would, Judea. And Jerusalem was the capital of it. And this guy was a client king because, if you love the history, he had married into the Jewish culture, into the Jewish religion. He wasn't Jewish by birth, but boy, did he like to be king. And his name was Herod. Herod the Great, Herod the Builder. He was known. You can go and read a lot about him because he made sure there were a lot of things written down about him. Herod liked Herod. Herod was very much into Herod. He liked the fact that he had, he had married into the Hasmonean kingdom, which is what got Hanukkah started. We don't have time to go into all that, but I'm just saying there he was, and he liked being in the driver's seat. Herod had this job of being a client king. And what I mean by client king is Rome would go into and uh, you know, occupy, overtake any area that they wanted because they had it all together militarily. They would go in, and if the leader of that region would cooperate with them, they would basically say, okay, you report to us. You can still be king, but you still have to give us all of the tax money that we require, and we will support you as long as you are good and you keep your nose clean as far as we're concerned. If they didn't like the, the, the leadership of the area, they would... Get rid of that person and install someone as a governor over that. But Herod was willing to play the game. So he was a client king. So he is standing essentially between the Jewish temple and the government of Rome. And he loved the power. I got the power! Just telling you. You can read about it. This guy was super sharp. He was not a dummy. He was quick. He was very, very ambitious. He was extremely aggressive, and he had very high political status. He knew how to play that game in the halls of government. He had an incredible, insatiable ambition for Herod. Here's where I would just pause. I'm not saying that you're a horrible, evil king. But if you let your ambition run wild without letting it be governed by the God who loves you, if you take your talent and you say, I'm all that and a bag of chips, it will, I guarantee it, not because I said it, it's just because it's true. It will get you into trouble. It will get you into trouble, and you will pay an extremely high price. And I'm just warning you. That is one area, I believe, where every one of us can say there is a little bit of Herod in all of us. He had a reputation of being Herod the Builder because he built cities. He, you can go, even to this day, you can go to some of the seaports there on the Mediterranean that he built. He reinforced the fort. He built aqueducts, arenas. He even rebuilt the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which was only on about seven acres of land. He expanded it to about 14 to 16 acres, and he delved deep into that mountain on which it is built, and he built an enormous foundation for it. And he did all that, yes, to honor his Jewish roots that he married into, but he also wanted to make sure everybody knew that was Herod's temple. And that is where his story starts to intersect with what we would call the Bible. Let me give you a story on this. Anybody interested in what I'm saying right now? Okay. One story, one situation that helps you understand a little bit better how he operated is that you go back before Jesus, and you go back about uh, 30 or 40 years, and Rome was a republic. It was a, uh, a republic. It was not an empire. And there was one guy who showed up uh, as a military figure who was outstanding. And any of you who paid attention in all these classes, his name was Julius 
Remember him? If you've read his story, uh, you remember that he was murdered in the Roman Senate chamber. A two brute. Because his supposed friend, Brutus, came and stabbed him and killed him right there on the spot. That was March the 15th of 44 B.C. He had a nephew that Julius adopted, because you could kind of do that to make sure that things passed on down. He had a, a nephew, and his name was Octavius. Everybody say Octavius with me. Yeah, so we don't call him that anymore. You know what we call him? We call him Caesar Augustus. You may have heard of his name. You usually hear his name about the time every year. He thought he ruled the world. In fact, the reason he named himself Caesar Augustus is essentially what that means is I am the son of God. He deified his uncle, and then he said, and I am the son of that God. Wow. Mom, I had some real problems with pride, but these guys took it to a whole nother level. Yep. He had a friend, and his name was Mark Anthony, or Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony's a music star. But hey, um, Caesar Augustus, Mark Anthony, they decided that they were going to get together and partner up and avenge the death of Julius, so they started going after all the people who were involved in Julius' death. And they were so good at what they did. They were so good at being avengers of what they thought needed to. It eventually came down to a spot to where there's this saying, hey, there's only room in this town for one sheriff. That's essentially what they both said to each other. Love you, no, don't. You're going to die in your sleep. You're going to have to sleep sometime. Okay. So they each have their military legions and start, the, the, the guys that are fighting with them and for them, I'm just telling you, they start taking sides. Then there's this situation where they're there in Palestine, Judea, and here's where Herod comes into the picture. Because Mark Antony had this famous wife, and her name was Cleo, or Cleopatra, you may know her as. Anyway, Judea sits right next door to Egypt, and she was in charge of Egypt, and Herod, obviously, was on team Antony. Because you want to hang out with the people who, you know, can, can butter the bread for you. I'm saying you can go back and read it. Herod hosted parties for Mark Antony and Cleopatra. He gave them gifts as if they needed anything. He supported Mark Antony's military efforts. Herod was pretty tight with Mark Antony. So they finally have this, this, this civil war between Mark Antony and Octavius or Caesar Augustus. In fact, it was when Octavius wins... He says, I am Caesar Augustus. I am the son of God. He declares that there is no more republic. It is now. I am king. It is now. It is now mine. It is an empire. And I am the emperor. And if you look at Herod, you turn around like, what are you going to do, dude? And he goes, I bet on the wrong horse. Because I sided with Mark Antony, and now he's dead. And the guy that I was supposedly going to fight against. So he's left with three options. You either kill yourself and put yourself out of your own misery that you're about to come into. You run and you run like the devil. You hunker down and hope they forget. Go, go lose yourself so that maybe they'll lose you too. But Herod, no, 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 no. He is not your average bear. He says, you know what I'm going to do? Somebody get him on the phone. Find out on Facebook. Locate him. Where is Octavius? Where is he right now? He happened to be on the island of Rhodes out in the middle of the Mediterranean. 
Herod gets on a ship with a bunch of gifts and stuff, and he sails two roads and says, uh, you know, everybody who sees him get off the ship says, what are you doing here? Because your, your poster, the wanted poster for you is all over the place. This is the last place on earth you need to be. You're an enemy of the state. What are you doing here? Caesar Augustus is so intrigued, he says, let him come on in. And Herod is escorted in, and he gives this speech. This is all a part of recorded history. He says to Octavius, to, to Caesar Augustus, he says, as you know, I was a friend of your friend Mark Antony. And as you know, I was a loyal supporter of his in the very beginning of the whole civil war. And I was his ally till the very bitter end. So, you can see. You can know about me that when I pledge my loyalty to someone, I am loyal to the end. And so I sailed two roads to talk to you, O oh great Caesar, so that I might pledge my loyalty to you. Wow. Caesar Augustus is so amazed and so impressed that he did not take the kingdom of Judea from Herod and kill him on the spot. Instead, he said, you know what? I'm going to give you Samaria, I'm going to give you Jericho, and I'm going to give you Gaza as well. Because, you know, this fight's been going on a long time. Then he sends him home and says, God bless. I'm just here to tell you, Herod knew how to play the game in order to get what Herod wanted. Along the way, though, he is extremely arrogant. He is extremely controlling. I'll say it again. Herod was committed to Herod. He not only wanted the power, and you can see this from the things he said and the things that he did. He wanted a legacy, and he knew that he would eventually take his last breath, but he wanted to make sure his legacy went on even though his breath did not. That's what led him to very vicious, evil, bad decisions. One right after another. I'm just saying, let's back away from Herod. I'm not saying you're an evil king of some distant land. But I'm saying, have you ever made plans that you kept making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision? And then one day you wake up and go, what was I thinking? Okay. He wanted to control his kingdom, and he wanted to control it now, and he wanted to control it later. If you can identify with that, then you're with me in this message. He was so obsessed with his legacy... A relative on the Judean throne, that's what he wanted. He wanted to have somebody related to him on that Judean throne forever and ever and ever. That's why if any of the religious rabbis essentially representing the temple would come to him and say anything that he did not like, he'd have them killed right there on the spot. You think, well, that makes sense because they were against him. Oh, hey, this guy had multiple wives. That doesn't show a lot of wisdom, but hey, I'm just telling you. He had multiple wives, and he had so many sons. And the game he would play with them is, I want to see if you're going to be the one who you know, succeeds me. And he put them through tests. He had three of his sons. He would say, you're set up to be the next king. They would do something that he didn't like. He killed them. Killed his own sons. You're not right. I'm just telling you, the man was incredibly insane. And whenever he got mad, ooh, Lord. That is also recorded. When he got mad, he was so vicious. And he would do whatever it took to maintain control and legacy. I'm just asking, do you know anybody like that? Because it's a human condition. 
That's Herod. Now, we're out toward Jesus, okay? Herod's about 70 years old at this point, which is actually pretty good for that time frame. He's about 70 years old, but by this time, he is very, very sick, chronically sick, and the best we can determine, because they didn't diagnose it the same way we do, but we think that he probably had a fatal and very painful kidney disease. So he knew that his time was short. He wants to consolidate his legacy because his time is running out. And this, listen, all of what I've told you is important for you to understand who we're dealing with whenever Matthew starts referring to him. Because, let's just be honest, the only reason you know pretty much anything about Herod the Great is because of what Matthew wrote about a carpenter, a contractor, who was born in Bethlehem. Hmm. Interesting. Herod, who thinks he's all that bag of chips, gets probably the most disturbing news imaginable from his point of view. He's sitting in Jerusalem, and five miles south of his palace, he finds out that a new king is learning to walk. But don't forget, Herod thinks he's the king. And that's how Matthew introduces this story. I'm reading from Matthew 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, and he pinpoints it, it's during the time of King Herod, Herod the Great, Magi, as I said, you know who they are, the wise guys, from somewhere back east came to Jerusalem because it is the capital of Judea. And in all likelihood, they had the Hebrew scriptures that they had studied and they figured that's where they should go. And they came asking around town. Listen, listen, feel it with me. They come here and they ask. Think of how this would have played out in those streets. Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Come back here to the back of the... Don't say king of the Jews. It's a guy over there. And he doesn't like anybody else playing with that title. And he said, but we wanted to know. We've been reading about it. We've been all these places, and we came to see. Where is the king of the Jews? Shh, shh, shh. And then they go into the specifics because they've been reading the prophecies. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Okay. Some things in there, you go, I can't explain them, but I can't deny them. They were actually happening. It's funny. Walruses have ears. The gossip gets out. These guys are in town. They don't look like everybody else. They don't talk like everybody else. And they're asking questions about where's the king of the Jews. And Matthew just simply says, when King Herod heard this, <laughs> I love his understatement of this. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And, now that you understand who Herod was, Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Because when Herod was upset, everybody's upset. Does this make sense? You with me? Okay. Because when he got mad, that's when things got dangerous. Heads would literally roll. And he's in a lot of pain. And he's old. And he's drawing down to the end of his days. And he's desperate to control his legacy. So... Because he is the king and has a bit of influence, when he, Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. Can you imagine just trying to study the Bible in some place around the temple, and then somebody comes with a, a message and says, King Herod wants to see you. It's like getting a, uh, it's like getting a letter with those three letters, you know, three 
capital letters on the front, I-R-S, you're going, this is not going to be good news. I'm sorry. There's just no way. I, I don't, like, Herod wants to talk. Oh, dear. Okay, so that's where he says, I'm going to call all the people that I really don't know anything about. I claim to be Jewish, but I know none, none of the scriptures. He calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asks them where the Messiah was to be born. Well, some Jewish king you are, you don't even know where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And it had already been said, it had been prophesied he was going to be born in Bethlehem. This was not a secret. And so they look at him and go, well, the, the notes say, the, the prophecies say in Bethlehem and Judea. Because that's what the prophet wrote, and they refer to it. It's from Micah 5. That had been written 700 years prior to this date. They said, in Bethlehem and Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, He's a, he is a sharp guy. He's doing his math. He's doing his homework. But whenever he knows that he wants to be king, but he hears that there is a Messiah, a king of the Jews that is being born, it's probably the worst news he could probably have heard. So he's already had his meeting with the religious guys, and now Herod calls on the Magi to come talk to him. He called the Magi to have a secret meeting, and they found, he found out from them the exact time when that star had appeared to them, which was approximately two years prior. A lot of times we want to put the wise men, the magi, at the manger. They weren't at the manger. Jesus is almost two years old by this time. Living in a house, it even says. Okay? But back to Herod. Information is power. He wants to know so he can do something about it. So he gets the information he wants. They have the information that he's telling them. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said... I love this because somebody as conniving and as manipulative as him, I bet he gave his most smarmy look and went, you should go down to Bethlehem. And when you go down there, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for that child. For as soon as you find him, report to me so that I, too, may go and worship him. Hmm. After they had heard the king, Herod, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And I love this because while you might not have thought yourself a wise man or a wise woman, I'm just telling you, maybe they're making the better choice. The Magi say this, that when they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, they saw this child with his mother Mary, and that's when they bowed down and they worshipped him. Cool stuff. When we hear worship, we think music. Yes, music is a way to worship, but that's not worship. Worship is actually recognizing that you're in the presence of someone that is greater than you. You go, I have nothing but awe. I have nothing but respect. I want to tell them their worth. When you are in awe of someone mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, you have to, uh, there's something in us that wants to respond with some form of surrender to say, you are greater than me. Which is, honestly, having traveled the world, I think this is where Americans have the hardest time. Because we like us. And we don't have no king. I'm the king. And even when I say, when I feel like I need to surrender to someone, it's like, well, I don't know. Am I supposed to 
hmm, might need to rethink that. So these philosophers, these wise men, these wealthy men have traveled a really, really, really long way. It's taken them a long time. In all likelihood, there was probably a big uh, entourage that went. But they brought these gifts, and they did it at their own expense. And why were they doing that? Because they were looking for Jesus. And I would say, as a little side message, wise men still seek Jesus. When they find him, and he's a baby! Maybe his mama put him in a Michelin suit and sent him out to play with the dogs. I don't know. But I'm saying he's only two years old or so. But when they find him, they, they bow down and worship him. Why in the world? This kid has no power. <laughs> he has no power, even though he's the king of the world. I would say the only reason they bowed down and worshipped that little kid is because they believed that baby to be the one that had been prophesied for so long, and he was here. And what are you going to do when the Savior of the world walks into your room? And all along, they're having this wonderful worship service, and five miles north, Herod is having an anxiety attack. Because he would say something like this whenever we get defensive, and that is, you know, I haven't worked this hard for this long to be toppled by a toddler. I will not be dethroned by somebody in diapers. Have you ever seen anybody that gets all bowed up like that? Guys, come on. Is there anything about Herod that you can literally say, I identify with that? Have you ever been so tight-fisted about your plans that it doesn't matter? I'm going to do what I want to do. That's the kind of life he lived. Herod practiced that kind of control. He was going to be the guy in control. He wanted to control the outcome, control the outcome, control the outcome. No matter what it costs anybody else, I will control the outcome. Preserve, protect, control. Preserve, protect, control. He's old. He's racked with pain. And he is not about to worship anybody but himself. I can tell you straight up about this. I am not the king of anything. I like to say, I am the head of my home. And Leanne says, but I'm the neck that turns the head. Okay. People say, well, you're pastor of a church. You're large and in charge. Um, that's not the way church works. Sorry. I'm not the king of anything, really. But I do tell you that I have a lot about Herod that I go, on my worst day, that's where I'd be. And if you were to imagine your worst day, or you might think of it as your best day, it's like, <laughs> I want to pull the levers, I want to be in charge, I want to push the buttons. <laughs> I'm telling you, I think this whole thing leverages off the whole idea of worship. See, most people that I know love to play church. And I'm looking at you, whoever you are, wherever you are. We all love to play church because it's like, I don't mind the music. Some of it's, you know, I like that better than the other. 
I don't mind, you know, going and listening to that oblong dud, and, I, you know, he's, he's kind of cool. Thank you. He's like, you think that's worship? No, those are things that we do around worship. But you go, I don't mind doing all that, but just let me, let me go at around 11.30, you know, 11.45 sometimes, because you never stop talking, David. And let me get back to my kingdom. Because I'm going to build my kingdom, and I'm going to facilitate my future. And you basically say, you know what, I want to go and get enough of God that if God will help me, yeah, I'm down for that. And he's going, yeah, I don't, that's not, mm -mm, that's not how I do that. This whole deal of worshiping, and by that I mean literally surrendering to God to say, I'm yours. Like an old preacher once said to me, it's like, you pray a prayer of worship whenever you say, yes, God. Now, what's the question? And some of you go, ooh, that's too scary. No, 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 I'm going to say yes to God. Because he might ask me to do something I don't want to do. <laughs> you go, well, then you're not worshiping. You're wanting to be the little G God of your life and talk to the hand, big G God. Y'all with me? Okay. Will you agree with me that there's a little bit of Herod in all of us? <laughs> now, this is where it gets so, so very interesting that... that, that if you trust God, he will actually lead you. Because I'm continuing in Matthew, and we're talking about the Magi. Even though there's this tension happening in real time, it says, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. The Magi, they returned to their country by another route. Because you know they went south five miles to Bethlehem. It's like, let's not go back through Jerusalem. Let's go another way. Let's slip out over there on the other side of Syria, and he won't catch us. And when they had gone, again, God is leading. He's doing all this. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. We're going to talk about Joseph next week a little bit more. But appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, get up. <laughs> and by the way, angels in the Bible are not little naked babies with wings and all that kind <clears throat> Apparently, they're mighty warriors, so can you imagine in a dream? Get up! Take the child and his mother, and you need to go south to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So, Joseph got up, took the child and mother during the night, and they left for Egypt. And then Matthew records for us that when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And you remember what happens when he gets furious. It's one of the most tragic aspects of Scripture we're about to read. When he was furious, people died. That's the way life worked. I've already told you about what he did to his own family because he spent his life trying to control outcomes. And this was a situation that was going out of control and it didn't look like he was going to be able to control it. However, being the guy who said, yeah, I bet on the wrong horse, but I'm going to go talk to the right horse and we're going to get good, okay? He was so crafty and bold enough to believe that he could still pull another lever and something would happen. He wasn't about to be outsmarted by a baby king. He does the unimaginable. 
unless you know Herod, and then you go, yeah, okay. He orders his contingent of soldiers to go five miles south to Bethlehem and basically says, if they won't bring me the one that I want, if they won't bring him to me, well then, he gave his soldiers orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and Cincinnati who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. By all estimates, Bethlehem was probably a village of about 500 people if you do a lot of tables and stuff. We're talking about anywhere between 10 to 20 infant boys that they took out, ran them through with a sword in front of all their family. And history tells us that soon after this, Herod's death got so bad because of that kidney disease, he tried to take his own life. It was really tough to actually commit suicide back in the day. He tried to take his own life, but his cousin stopped him, and he lived just a little bit longer. And then just right before he died, just to give you a little bit more of a taste of what a despicable person he was. As he was lying on his deathbed, he said, I need you to round up all the wealthy, influential, distinguished, outstanding men in Jerusalem and put them all in prison. And then when I take my last breath, I want you to go and kill all of them so that there will be mourning on the day that I die. He was extremely ruthless, but he was not a dummy. He knew that when he died, people would party in the streets because he had finally died. But he even wanted to control that. But I will tell you, <laughs> when he died, they opened those jail doors and let all those people out and said, thank God and Graham, he's gone. So it says that Matthew records, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph while they were in Egypt and said, get up! Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel because those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Y'all, listen, what I'm trying to tell you is so important. I hope you'll lean in. He had spent his whole life trying to control outcomes, and yet here's a guy who was known as King Herod, Herod the Great, and go to all the history books, but the only reason you know about Herod is because of the toddler king. You would not be talking about him unless it were in regards to the king of all the kings who did exactly what he said he would do. He lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father. People were there, they saw it, and now they've staked their life on it. Everybody in Rome, as well as the temple, tried to stamp out this Jesus movement, and the Jesus movement is still going today. There is no temple, there is no Rome. So if you were talking to Herod, he's like, good news, Herod. For 2,000 years, people are going to be talking about you. The bad news is you're a cameo part in the Christmas story. Nobody talks about what you built. Nobody talks about how great you were. No, you're just Herod the Butcher. That's who you are. Listen to me, church. Listen, listen. You would look into his eyes and go, Dude, you were five miles away from the king of all the kings, and yet you were so full of yourself, you couldn't see past the end of your nose. You had every opportunity to go the five miles down there and bow a knee to him. But you, you missed, missed, completely, completely missed, missed the best, best opportunity of your life. If you had bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, that, that would have been your greatest day. 
Okay? If that was a movie, fades to black, the music finally tapers off. Okay, now, 80 years later, 80 years later, Herod's gone. Jesus grew up to be a man. He taught. He did miracles. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to be with the Father. Eighty years after this fact, Augustus, the Son of God, the guy who's going to be king of the world, he's gone. Tiberius is gone. Nero is gone. The temple has been completely destroyed. Everything that Herod built and everything the Jews relied on, it was scraped off the top of that mountain. Eighty years later, Matthew, Mark, Luke have all written about the life of Jesus. And finally, finally, after all these years, John says, Yeah, I know that they told you all that, but I've got to tell you one more thing. There were so many signs, and those signs were pointing to light. Go toward the light. He is the caretaker of Jesus' mother, Mary. They're probably in Ephesus. And he sits down to breakfast with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and says, Would you tell me one more time, what was it like to give birth to Jesus? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's like, I bet it still hurt. But then leaning in and saying, Mary, what was it like whenever you were fleeing Bethlehem, knowing, at least to some degree, that something bad was about to happen for people that were your neighbors? Mary, what was it like when you heard the news that some of your friends lost their sons? What was that like? Because John would sit back and go, you know, I saw all the miracles. I could not believe he turned that water into wine. I cannot believe he called Lazarus back from the dead. I heard him teach, Mary. I saw him do all these things. He was trying to teach us something, and then he came walking on the water to drive that truth home. This is the same kid. Because he was the youngest of all those 12. That whenever Mary Magdalene said the tomb is empty, he and Peter run to the tomb. And John is the one who ran faster. And he gets there and he's just a little bit nervous because who really wants to go into a tomb? But he's the one who stoops down and goes, there ain't nothing in there. This is the same John who was out there with all the rest of them fishing because they didn't know what to do and they see somebody cooking breakfast on the beach because they're out on the water. And they're going, that smells good, what is that? And John's the one who recognizes Jesus' voice. <laughs> and after all these years, because John is really old, but he sits down and he writes this and he summarizes it. And don't forget, he got to camp with Jesus. <laughs> I think we should listen to him. I told you from the beginning of this message, my agenda is, please reconnect with the God who loves you. He's not far off and distant. He is up close and personal. Don't be like Herod. Be like the Magi. You owe it to yourself. Because that thing that you feel in your heart while I'm talking to you is not me. I don't have that kind of power. But whenever I tell you that there is a God who loves you and that he has invaded our space and he wants to redeem you, that is the light. 
You can't generate that. It comes to you from God. There is a light. It may be just an ember, and you need to go, you need to get it to burn. And you know what that light is leading you toward? Life. Life that knows that your past is forgiven, that you have a purpose for living, and that you have a home in heaven. There is light. There is life. And that day in your conscience is God trying to get your attention one more time. But you cannot stay the same. That is why John wrote at the beginning of his account of walking with Jesus. He says, I was with him and in him. I don't know how to find the right words, but he said, here's the best I can do. In him was life, and that life in him was the light of all mankind. He said, I put that in there because I thought it was going to be a Jewish thing or a regional thing. And it's not. It's a all skate. Everybody gets in. We're not centered around a temple. It doesn't matter who's in charge in any government sense. The ground zero for life is Jesus. And I love, he says that in the past tense. Y'all roll with me. Don't go to sleep yet. He says that's past tense because I was there. I saw it. All of that in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And then he switches to the present tense. And he said that light of Jesus shines. Present tense. Without stopping. Present tense. He says I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I felt it. I believed it. I smelled it. That is what I experienced and that it is also what I continue to experience right now, and that's why I'm writing it to you. John says, I'm about to, because this is the beginning of his gospel. He says, I'm about to tell you some of the great stuff that Jesus Christ did. I'm going to tell you why. But the bottom line of it all is, this message is that Jesus is the light of the world. He's not just an inspirational, prophetic figure. He is the Son of God, the real Son of God. He is the light of the world, and he is the light of the world for all people everywhere. Jesus is the light. He is currently shining for everyone. He is shining. Listen, he's shining right now in Cortez, Colorado. He is shining right now in an online space emanating from Cortez, Colorado. Not because I said so. It's because the light is shining, and he shines wherever there's darkness. And if you feel like your life has been stumbling around in the dark, I'm trying to get it through to you. Jesus is that light. John has outlived all the other disciples. He has paid an extremely excruciating price for saying, I saw him alive, I saw him dead, and then I saw him alive again. He has been so persistent in telling his story, they have exiled him to a Greek island so that he can't reach many people. He is cut off from everybody that he knows. The temple that he grew up with is gone. The Romans have won by any measure. Not a lot of bright spots. And yet here is the guy who says, you know what? The light shines in the darkness. And then he says, and the darkness has not overcome it. The words he used means the darkness has not swallowed it. And the darkness has not put it out, has not blown it out. Listen, don't let go of what I'm telling you right now. I told you Herod's story. I'm more concerned about what is your story. What will your story be? If Jesus doesn't come back as he said he would, between now and the time you take your last breath, or between now and the time I take my last breath, and we all gather in a room kind of like this, and maybe you're in a little box or a big box, it doesn't matter. 
What will your story be? What will people get up on this platform or one like it and say about you? Will they have to dig deep to try and figure out something good to say about you? Because isn't it funny? I've told you before. Funerals is where, man, you get the best resume you've ever had. People say stuff about you like that mom said, go up there, son, see your, that's your daddy in that casket or not. Because those people who are saying all those things, I don't think they knew him. What, what will, will your story be? be? What, what will they, they say? say? I'm just I'm asking you, and you know, some of you love to put it, uh, you know, fill in the blanks. Is, is your, your story, story going to be a story, story of resistance? resistance? Like Herod? Or will your story be a story of worship? Like the Magi? It's, it's okay, okay to build things, things. but don't, don't give any more time to build in your kingdom. kingdom. Build his kingdom. Can you figure out how to let go of your kingdom and bow the knee and surrender yourself to his kingdom? Is it going to be your way or is it going to be God's way? Because you can keep trying to hit all the buttons and pull all the levers and control outcomes. But to, to, to use a phrase that I love, I think you ought to go ahead and give the thing you cannot keep for what you cannot lose. I'm asking you, will you pray my will or thy will? And you have to make a choice every day. If you feel tension in what I'm saying, the reason you feel that tension is because the tension is real. The reason you feel tension is because there's a little bit of Herod in you, just like there's a little bit of Herod in me. But like I said, somebody's going to stand up and give a memorial. They're going to try and say something about you. What will they say? Will they have to make stuff up in order to sound nice? Or will they be able to say, there was a point in this person's life, in his life or her life, it is clear, because they spoke of it often, it is clear that they gave up being king of their life and they made Jesus the king of their life. And maybe they will continue to say, that life and that light in them, it was Jesus. There was no doubt about it. Jesus, the light of the world, he was the king of their life. And hopefully they say something along their life. And because they lived with the light and life of Jesus, it influenced me, and Jesus is the light and life of my life, too. That would be a good legacy. I've said this over these last few weeks in, in, in the Shadow King series, and in this one, no matter how much doubt, no matter how much pain, no matter uh, disenchantment, in spite of all confusion and distractions, celebrating the birth of Jesus is a good thing. Because if you realize that God sent Jesus into the middle of our mess because it was dark, you go, thank you, God. And a lot of you, let me, let me tell you, let me tell you, I've been through the church wars. And so have you, a lot of you. Sometimes the church does not get it right. People are all messed up. But I'm telling you, y'all, Jesus is better than all the church wars. When the darkness creeps back in, Jesus is still the light of the world. The darkness has not overcome it, cannot overcome it. It's shining right here. I'm asking you to do whatever it takes to stir up that ember right now. Take a small step and say, with your eyes wide open, with your heart wide open, I want that light. I want to know that my past, my sin, that rebellion in me, he has forgiven that. He paid for it with his blood. He paid for it with his life. But I want that. I need the forgiveness of it. But I also want to be able to get up every morning and say, 
When I serve other people, I'm serving the God of the universe, and I do that, I have a purpose. My life has meaning. And then you can also live fearlessly because every single day, Scott, I may take my next breath, it might be the last one, but I'm either here in this flesh and he's walking with me or I'm face to face with Jesus Christ. Here, here's the thing. Listen, the Magi, they got it right. They did the right thing. They were in the presence of the Holy Spirit. They took a knee. They knew that it, he was light. He was life. And they did the only legitimate thing they could do, and that is they worshiped him. So I'm doing what I told you I challenge you to do. And that is, would you please engage, be engaged with Jesus and just surrender? Let yourself go. Surrender. He loves you just the way you are. He loves you way too much to leave you. But he will give you forgiveness, purpose, and courage. We have a couple more services that we're going to be into. So during this time, either in this moment or in those moments, just simply engage with Jesus. Let him be the light of your life. Maybe right now the kind of commitment you need to make is, I'm coming back to church and I'm bringing my family with me. Good. Don't just do it for the Christmas service. Make the commitment and say, I'm going to be here in January too. And then I'm going to recommit in January and I'll be here in February. And then in March, maybe. I might even make it to Easter. Maybe you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to get uh, the Bible app and I'm going to start reading the Gospel of John. Just one chapter a day. I'm going to see who Jesus is. I'm just telling you, don't neglect that little ember. Let's see it fan into flame. You get it? Good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for sending Jesus to be the light of the world. I thank you that the darkest of all dark cannot put it out. I thank you that you still continue to forgive sin. If only we ask. I thank you that you give leadership by the power of your spirit in our life. You said if we seek wisdom, give it. I thank you for, yeah, you've been so true to that. Thank you. Lord, I thank you that you put broken families back together if they only surrender to you. We wrestle with this, Lord, because we want to be king. But you are the king. No one but you. No one but you. In this moment, give courage to those who are stepping out in faith for the very first time to say, yes, Jesus, be the king of my life. I pray that you will also undergird and support all those of us who have known you for so long and we've drifted. Lord, we want to get back on track. We want to be wise men. We want to be wise women. And we want to seek you for everything you're worth. Lord, we're about to sing a song that gives you that kind of honor and praise. May you be pleased with the way we worship and the way we get out of this place. <laughs> Do a good work in our lives and our families and in our church and our community. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.